Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Sunshine, oh yeah. Sunspots? Not so much lately. The 2008 sun beamed the fewest sunspots in nearly a century. We'll ask a space weather expert today what happened and what we can expect in 2009. And political change here on Earth means climate change action is coming soon. Hear what one climate change watchdog expects in 2009 and beyond. Weather in space and climate change on Earth, today on Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm Paul Hutner with Minnesota Public Radio. Dr. Mark Seeley from the University of Minnesota and Minnesota Public Radio cohort. Craig Edwards are riding shotgun today. Hi, you guys. Hello, Paul. Good to see you today. Great to be back with you, Paul. Great to be here, guys. You know, winter this year is in full force in much of the nation. In fact, uh, December setting some snowfall records here in the upper Midwest. Mark Seeley, is your hand getting a little tired from counting up the inches on your weather abacus <laughs> in parts of Minnesota? It, it sure is. You know, Paul, not only do we have areas across the Great Lakes region that have already had over 60 inches of snow, we've also seen persistence of snow. We've had weather observers in the area report snow on 40 of the last 42 days. That's, that's uh, I would guess, and imagine record-setting. Are we yeah, talking yeah, International Falls? That, that, yeah, for persistence, that's record-setting, at least at International Falls. And I imagine that's getting a little irritating to have snow that frequently. <laughs> that storm track has been right overhead and just dealing clipper after clipper and other weather systems our way. You know, another interesting thing uh, this past couple of weeks, one of our weather eyes in the sky goes 12 or goes east, as we like to call it, uh, has been having some issues. It seems thruster problems prevented the spacecraft from getting images back to Earth. Craig Edwards, our weather satellites, they're critical, as you know, to our forecast accuracy. Uh, What has NASA been doing there? And I hear there may be some good breaking news with this situation. Yeah, NOAA Satellite Services has uh, remedied that, Paul, and as of yesterday, they put GOES-12 back in service. Now, what they were able to do in the interim was position GOES-13, which was launched way back in May of 2006 as a backup satellite. They were able to position that and give that images, so it was pretty transparent to the users. Of course, Paul, you know we also have GOES-11 that monitors the uh, western half of the nation, and there have been times when we've been caught with only one ghost satellite, and uh, at those times they've actually repositioned the satellite to cover most of the United States. So we got good news to report. Ghost 12 is back in service as of yesterday. And so it goes. Uh, good news this time. Hey, speaking of space and weather, our weather engine, the sun, was unusually quiet last year. The sun in 2008 generated fewer sunspots than any year since 1913. That's the quietest sun in nearly a century, and astronomers say it's a clear sign that we are moving through what they call solar minimum. That's the lull in sunspot activity between solar cycles that peaks every 11 years or so. The last solar cycle peaked in about 2001, the next somewhere around 2012. 
Most astronomers are expecting a big increase in sunspots ahead for 2009. One of those is Douglas B. Secker from NOAA's Space Weather Center, and he joins us today from Boulder, Colorado. And, Doug, welcome back. I understand it's a windy Boulder, Colorado today. Yes, it's a windy day both on the ground here and actually up in space. Well, let's talk about uh, the sunspots. First of all, do you expect an increased number of sunspots this year? Certainly uh, redo, and I say that both as somebody at the Space Weather Prediction Center, but also as the chair of the Solar Cycle Prediction Panel. And this panel consists of international experts who are supposed to come up with our best prediction for what the sun will do in the future. Now, last year, we had a, a blank sun. I, I found 266 days uh, is that unusually quiet to be sunspot-free during what we would consider a solar minimum? It's not unusual to find days at solar minimum where there are no sunspots on the sun. In fact, at solar minimum, that, that's the more usual condition. To have that many days is unusual. Um, you have to go back to you know, the 1950s to get the last time when... We had such a quiet minimum, and then, as you said, back about 100 years to, to when we were really, really, really quiet with the solar cycle. We've been kind of, uh, may, is, it, is it lucky or unlucky, with recent uh, solar cycles in the space age when the sun has been, you know, producing very active solar cycles and getting down to minimum levels of activity, which were still... Uh, you know, pretty far above zero. So the sun was just not getting as quiet as it is right now. Uh, Say, Doug, uh, for our listeners, I'm wondering, we talk about the cycle, but I'm wondering about a little shorter time frame in terms of the uh, sun's activities. Is there a periodicity to the sun's activity relative to, say, shorter time cycles, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, uh, maybe, uh, you know, Uh, Along those lines? Absolutely. There's a 27-day period. The sun rotates. Uh, So the the same way the the Earth spins on its axis in one day, well, the sun spins on its axis in 27 days. And so if you have uh, one of these regions of high-speed wind or you have an active region on the sun uh, that persists for at least 27 days, it'll disappear behind the backside of the sun and then come around again. Uh, 27 days later. This is Craig Edwards, and I want to follow up with that. When I was very new to the science of meteorology way back in the 70s, they were talking about this 11-year sunspot cycle or this 11-year cycle, and then they were talking about its impact on weather. What do we know about driving climate in regards to uh, sun activity, especially with regard to this 11-year cycle that was thrown out there back in the 70s? Okay, well, let's let's make sure we distinguish, and we want to talk about climate or weather here. So from the climate perspective, uh, it seems very certain that there, the sun's role in climate is measurable but small. So, yes, there is definitely an impact, but, you know, can you account for the major changes we've seen in temperature in, in the modern age, you know, explaining that with changes in the sun? The answer to that is clearly no. Um, the issue of whether the sun impacts weather is really even more uncertain. There's some 
questions as to whether the sun influences the cosmic rays, which could do some seeding of clouds, um, especially uh, in the North Atlantic, uh, and whether that uh, cloud affects cloud cover, which then affects, you know, regional weather. That's a very, you know, uh, questionable topic. You know, we don't really know the, the cause and effect there that would, would make that happen. Uh, what we do know is that, in fact, terrestrial weather has an impact on space weather. Um, how, how, that you caught my ear with that one, Doug. Rough that out a little bit. Okay, for us. so space weather isn't just about what's happening on the sun. It's about how the sun impacts the Earth's magnetosphere or its magnetic field, and then the ionosphere and thermosphere of the Earth. And in fact, we see evidence of um, gravity waves transported upwards into the thermosphere, um, affecting. Uh, space weather modeling of that region. Fascinating. So you know, to get full understanding of, of space weather, we clearly need terrestrial weather. Now, if we get that, we may find downward influences that are affecting terrestrial weather. It's it's amazing stuff. And what continues to amaze me with, you know, 20, 25 years in this business is how much we know and how much we don't know about all these various interactions. It's fascinating stuff. Let's go back to climate a minute, Doug. Um, the 11-year solar cycle, uh, as I see, is pretty regular, very regular, going back to about 1715. But then we hit that period they call the Maunder Minimum, uh, and it coincided with the Little Ice Age about 70 years before that, from 1645 to 1715. Was there any signature to tell us why that happened and if it could happen again? No, that's the Maunder Minimum is one, is one of those big mysteries in solar physics where uh, even when we look at other stars and we see solar cycles on other stars, we see evidence for similar sorts of Maunder Minima where they seem to go quiet for a while. Um, that's one of the big questions that we try to use to test even these prediction models. You know, would your prediction model be able to predict a Maunder Minimum when okay, um, the sun is now at a very minimum level of activity. We're seeing the occasional region pop up. What what would cause it to persist in this state for, you know, the next decade or 20 or 30 years? Or vice versa, if we're in such a state, could your model give us a prediction that, that gets us out of that? And that's really where the models seem to fail the most. Um, and so... It makes it, you know, that would be kind of the perfect test of a prediction model. Say, Doug, I want to change uh, direction just for a minute. Um, you know, in the meteorological community or the weather community internationally, we are held as an example uh, of cooperation. I mean, uh, whether it's ocean route forecasting or uh, air air traffic or uh, any number of other things, climate modeling work, you name it, there's a very, very high level of international collaboration when it comes to both monitoring and research. And I'm just wondering, does that same hold true for space weather? Is there very good international cooperation in this arena? Absolutely, uh, in, in, a, in a lot of different ways, uh, both in gathering of data. Uh, for example, when we're, we're talking about sunspots, the official center for that is in Belgium. 
uh, Australia is very heavy into ionospheric services, and we get data from them. In return, we're providing all of our services. The U.S. is widely recognized as the leader. We generate the most data. We're working on the the, the cutting-edge models uh, and and providing the most in the way of services to customers. Uh, but we work with uh, you, you know you can look at a forecast center or, or an operational center. I shouldn't call it a forecast center in in places like China. Uh, or Belgium, and where are they getting most of their data? That's coming from us. Now, this is Craig Edwards. I want to finish up with, do you see us far enough along here to start incorporating space weather as part of a meteorological degree curriculum course? You know, that is already happening. Uh, I I couldn't name all the universities. Uh, I had a student this past summer from Millersville, uh, University in Pennsylvania, who uh, is in their program, uh, and they've got a space weather element. I know the University of Michigan has a space weather uh, element in their program. So universities are definitely using space weather now in their curricula for, uh, for their meteorology programs. Doug, one one quick last thing here to wrap it up as we head into this upcoming year. I, I saw on your, your page there for the Space Weather Center, the forecast for the rest of this month shows uh, an increase in sunspots. And quickly, what do you expect the rest of this month this year? And, and quickly, what are the forecast tools that you use, similar to what we might use to make a weather forecast? Well, when we talk about a one-month forecast, uh, you're, it's not clear whether you can say climatology use climatology which is really what a, a, a solar cycle forecast is mm-hmm. or whether you're uh using observations and you're kind of mixing those two together at, at the one month scale and a primary one month forecast would be taking advantage of this 27 day rotation of the sun well the sun often doesn't change very quickly so the face that it was presenting to us a month ago is likely to be the same face it presents to us um, now and likely to be the same face it will present in a month. So that would be the primary driver for any forecast. What, but, you know, the month-to-month variability, especially when it comes to sunspots, can be quite high. Doug uh, from NOAA's Space Weather Center. Doug Biesecker, thank you so much for shedding some light on space weather today. Well, thanks for having me on the program. In just two weeks, change is coming to Washington, D.C. Will climate change be at the top of the new Obama administration's agenda? Many climate change advocates hope so, and one of them is David Washko with Oxfam, an international relief organization active in climate change issues and the effects around the world. David, welcome to Jetstreaming. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing well today, and uh, you join us from Washington, D.C. today, the hub of activity this month, to be sure. And, you know, with a, with a full plate of crises from day one, as uh, then-President Obama takes office here in under a couple of weeks. What do you expect and hope from the Obama administration this year and in the future on climate change? 
Well, I think uh, President-elect Obama made very clear in a video presentation he gave to a summit hosted by Governor Schwarzenegger uh, toward the end of last year that he is prepared to take very serious action on climate change, um, that he recognizes the risks that climate change, global warming, is posing to uh, the planet and uh, to the people, especially the most vulnerable people on the planet. And so he's proposed um, uh, moving forward legislatively, uh, also uh, through administrative action he can take, and, and as well in the international arena in negotiations that are underway among uh, 180-some countries. Uh, David, uh, Mark Seeley here. Uh, I, I wanted to ask your opinion on something. Uh, given the, that the USA has been relatively absent from the international table in terms of discussions of uh, mitigating and adaptive strategies, uh, and Obama now is going to take a far more aggressive posture with this, how do you think or how do you see the U.S. playing into this? Are we going to try to jump in and assume a leadership role, or do we need to jump in and kind of catch up with other people on this? Uh, how do you see this playing out? Well, I think um, intensive engagement by the United States is going to be absolutely critical uh, to the success of the negotiations. Without it, I don't think there's uh, a serious possibility that we can reach a, a global agreement that's going to really address the, the emissions that uh, that we're facing and the, and the consequences from those emissions. And I do think that the Obama administration will understand that uh, once they're in office. There are certainly um, people who are, are going to be part of of the administration, particularly Carol Browner, who will uh, lead the White House's effort on energy and climate issues, who have been part of these uh, processes in the past. Um, she was the head of the EPA under the Clinton administration, and who understand that one has to uh, engage in a, in a quite serious way, that one can't simply stand on the sidelines or what, uh, what we witnessed over the past eight years, essentially a, a stall. Uh, in terms of the United States' engagement with the international community will, will simply repeat itself. So I do think we can envision the United States um, being uh, in the mix in a serious way and playing a lead role. It will, however, require the United States to, uh, in the, and the administration as well as Congress, to uh, be ready to take serious action. And that requires significant uh, reductions in emissions, uh, at least 25 to 40 percent below 1990 levels, which are often used as a benchmark uh, because they were first, uh, that was the, uh, the benchmark dateline referenced in an agreement uh, in 1992, the first UN climate agreement. Uh, so those reductions will have to be significant, but the United States will also have to be prepared to work with the rest of the world, especially developing countries, uh, to help put them on the path they need to be on. And that's true in a couple of ways. One is that uh, right now many developing countries, uh, especially least developed countries and small island states and other very vulnerable countries, 
are, are already feeling the effects of climate change. And uh, whether it's water scarcity or severe weather events like storms, uh, hurricanes and cyclones, or whether it's increased health risks, uh, they know that they are going to be, uh, they are already and are going to be increasingly having to cope with these consequences and need resources and uh, to do that. And uh, the, the United States and the rest of the developed world will have to step forward in the negotiations to provide those kind of resources so that uh, the vulnerable can, in fact, cope. In addition to that, uh, the developed world will have to make sure that it's possible for developing countries to develop in clean uh, ways, along low-carbon pathways, it's often said, that they can really continue to grow their economies while also uh, going down a path that doesn't exacerbate the already serious problems with global warming pollution. So if all of that is taken on board and the United States moves seriously on all of those fronts, I think it can be a quite critical player. And I think uh, President-elect Obama has signaled that that's the route he would like to pursue. Now, this is Craig Edwards. The legislative body appears to be positioned to go back to 2003 and the Climate Stewardship Act from, from McCain and Lieberman was already out there for discussion. And then the U.S. sort of treaded water in one way or the other. How, how important do you see the partnership between the government and the private sector in helping to resolve this problem? Well, I think there's going to have to be partnership. We've, um, you know, already seen a number of companies of various kinds. Most recently, um, some companies like Levi Strauss and Nike come together to say that serious climate action is is absolutely critical, um, and that emission reductions have to be on a quite um, significant scale. So I, I do think, and, and other companies have also been um, echoing those kind of viewpoints, some of them not quite as strongly as, as uh, the likes of Nike and Levi Strauss, but nonetheless, um, I think companies have been, um, uh, are increasingly aware that they need to take action. Companies like uh, major insurance companies, Munich Re, uh, Swiss Re, um, to name a couple, see that their businesses are in fact uh, deeply affected as insurance claims begin to increase because of climate impact. So they also believe that uh, action needs to be taken, and uh, they can work in a number of ways to help um, move this forward. And for example, we're working now um, with Swiss Re to develop some innovative insurance uh, systems for small farmers in Ethiopia that can help them cope with the impacts. Likewise, companies are increasingly deploying clean energy as a way to um, save them money and also help in the climate crisis. We're talking with David Waskow today with Oxfam America. David, uh, why don't you give us the website uh, so folks can find out a little bit more about what your organization does? Sure. Our uh, website is found at www.oxfamamerica.org, and you can type in that address uh, and then slash climate for our work on climate change issues. Well, it's fascinating stuff, and uh, like you, we all here at Jetstreaming are very much looking forward to see what happens uh, with regard to climate change policy here in the next uh, few years from the Obama administration. David Waskow from Oxfam America, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. A little thunder in January, pretty rare in these parts of the world, but not here on Jetstreaming. Craig Edwards has our website of the week this week, and Craig, uh, what do we got? Well, we've, uh, Paul, we've covered a lot of ground with websites since we've been doing Jetstreaming, but how about a simple uh, website as noahwatch.gov? 
That's N-O-A-A-W-A-T-C-H.gov. And you can get a uh, just uh, abundant information. Everything that SNOA doing that SNOA is doing in regard to environment, uh, space, weather, flooding, air quality. NOAAwatch.gov. Yeah, a great time of the year for that website too, Craig. I've uh, bookmarked that one because, as far as keeping up to date with what's going on around the country in terms of significant weather, there probably isn't a much better place to go to. And uh, it's a great one. I love the, uh, the the current warnings. We use this operationally, of course, on a daily basis for our weather chats here on Minnesota Public Radio. Good stuff if you're trying to keep track of everything. Um, listener feedback. Uh, our listeners are great here on Jet Streaming. We always encourage you to send your comments and questions to the Jet Streaming crew. Just go to mpr.org and find Jet Streaming on the program drop-down box and then Click on Contact Jet Streaming on our page. And one thing I wanted to bring to your attention, Mark and Craig, uh, this debate about the sun and, and solar variability in terms of climate, it's, as Doug said, it's, it's not as well understood perhaps as it will be down the road. But uh, some interesting debates and, and comments on my updraft blog this week from a posting that I put on there, and uh, very interesting stuff to look back at these solar cycles. So maybe folks can check that out uh, during the next few days as well. Good discussion this week, you guys. Uh, thanks, Craig. Thanks, Mark. Thank I'm looking you, for Paul. that war front, Paul. <laughs> We're looking <laughs> for that war front. I'd embrace a thunderstorm about now. We're looking for that January thaw, and I don't see it in sight yet. There's a little hint maybe along about the 20th. We're going to have to cross our fingers on that one. All right, for producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and sound guru Randy Johnson, I'm Paul Hutner. Please tell your weather-afflicted friends about jet streaming so they can join the fun too, will you? Thanks for listening. As always, keep your ear here to jet streaming and keep your weather eye on the sky. Hey,